0: Virginia Gay is self-described, highly sexed chaos. And if that is not the first line of her resume, I will be very disappointed. Virginia is, of course, an Australian actress, writer and director. You'll most likely recognise her voice from the characters she's played in television dramas. Frances James on Winners and Losers or Gabrielle Jagger on All Saints. But more recently, Virginia spends her time on stage, often writing and performing her own work. Two years of lockdowns made her realise that there is something special about live theatre, something that simply cannot be recreated in any other medium. Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend, right before the festive season. But first... Here is my conversation with Virginia Gay on her theatrical childhood, on leaving your ego at the door and making your own work. Virginia Gay, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honour. So let's start with you as a kid. Tell me about you as a child. Were you that kid that was always pushing themselves to the front of the stage and bashing the others out of the way? Yes or no?
1: Yes, it wasn't quite pushing myself to the front of the stage, but it was when I was five years old, I got taken to see Cats, the musical, Um, and when I came back to kindergarten the next day, so this is preschool, in fact, before I was even in like a proper school system, when I came back the next day, I was like we will be putting on a production of Cats and I will be directing it and also playing Rum Tum Tugger, which I think my tiny five-year-old mind recognised even then as the greatest role in Cats. None of this, none of this memories, none of this drifting away feminist, Rum Tum Tugger, that's the one. Did they do it? Did they listen to you? They did. They did. They did. Bless them. The poor loves. Everybody was corralled in. I think it took like a week. In my head, it took like a week to happen. That might've been more or less. You have no sense of time as a kid.
0: You were a primary school theater influencer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was the JC Williamson of the primary school scene. I loved it. And there are photos of me somewhere in a, in a lost box with a, with a cereal box guitar playing Rum Tum Tugger. And that's to me, is, yes, surely the beginning of my theatrical career. But always, even then, a maker, not just a performer, like a maker. I was like, I've got a vision for this version of Cats and it's Cats as children being cats against their will because someone forced them to. (laughs) What a twist.
0: So clearly your theatrical streak started early and then you head off to Newtown High School of Performing Arts, which is very much the place to go. I do. That says to me that you had parents who backed this dream and that's not the case for every young performer. What was the culture like in your house around theatre and you choosing the arts as a career?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The fact that my parents from the beginning were always like, listen, we have no idea if it'll make any money, we have no idea if you'll be able to do it, but if you love it, go and try it, go and do it, like give it your everything and if you fail, you fail, was... uh, an incredible quality, and they're also two of the most supportive people in the entire world. So even when shows are terrible, it is an incredible thing to have two people in your corner who are like, I tell you what, I loved that bit where, where just for that moment where it felt good for a second, and we saw that and we loved that. It was very lovely. They've always been incredibly supportive people. They're both very into the arts. They met doing like amateur theatre, student theatre at Sydney University. So they've got it in their bones. And I remember being backstage when, again, they were doing a student production of A Winter's Tale. And I remember being backstage, again, very young, thinking, my God, I don't quite know what this is, but it feels electric, being backstage feels electric. So to have fallen in love with that side of performing, as well as the out the front with the applause, I think you have no way of getting out of that. If you get a taste of both sides and you like both sides, then then I'm afraid you're a performer for life. I'm sorry, there's no way around it.
0: You're doing so much performing as a child and then as a teenager as well. It's got to have an impact on who you are as a person off stage too because the experiences we have as kids really do shape who we become as adults. And I, I think a lot of kids who don't become performers, still remember that time that they were in the school musical or the school play or or whatever because that is very much a formative experience. How do you think it's shaped who you are?
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. When I went to Newtown, what it gave me was an incredible work ethic. Like it gave me the sense that if you love this job, this industry – you start, we started rehearsals at seven o'clock in the morning for things. We would yeah, we would work up until school, then we would do schoolwork, then we would often rehearse during lunchtimes, then we'd do afternoon schoolwork and then we would rehearse after school and then often we would do a show in the evening as well. So there were days, weeks, stretches where I would get to school at 7am and I would be picked up at 10pm. So it taught me about like the all-encompassing work ethic of this and how – Lots of those things that I was talking about weren't drama per se. They were like playing in the school band. They were singing in choirs. So the sense too that all of that actually feeds your performance life. So working in a choir teaches you about blend and about collaboration and about how there is no star. Working in a school band teaches you about your part is as important and, yes, you can solo but you also serve a function and it might be a really strong harmony part, especially usually it is when you play the trombone. Thank you very much. Yes, not (laughs) a lot of solo trombone lines. What a shame. It's a real pity. It's a real pity. There might have been more solo trombone lines if I'd been a better trombone. But I was not, and that's fine too. But that sense of like, it was all day, every day. And I remember when I got to Whopper, instead of my body going, "Ooh, this is a lot of work, my body went, I know this. I know this feeling, and I know the, I, sure, great. You want me to work? You want me there at 7 a.m.? We finish at 10. I've got it, I've got it. Only, of course, when I got to Whopper, we also added drinking and flirting and <laughs> all of the very important extracurricular activities that were going on as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. The Australian performance scene is relatively small compared to the rest of the world, right? We import a lot of television. We make a bit here ourselves, but we bring in a lot from the States, from the UK.
1: Lots more at the moment too. Like it's Yeah, which is great.
0: Exactly. That's true. COVID has been good for one thing. Mm. We have some incredible performers on stage as well in this country. And yet at the same time, one of the criticisms that we've heard before on this podcast from other guests has been that Australia still tends to typecast, especially women, and that there aren't a huge variety of roles for women. So when you were in your university years at Whopper, was that something you were taught about? Were you taught to think about the industry and how you would fit into the slots that already exist or were you taught to go out there and, and remake the world of theatre and entertainment and TV to fit
1: you? Mm, what a very good question. It's a little of both. I would say primarily more the slot into. They want you
0: to get a job. They're not, you know, they're not trying to be mean.
1: Exactly, exactly. All drama schools and they're big institutions and there are a lot of people in there. They're they're working to go like, these are, these are probably the roles that you'll look for. But what all great drama schools do are give you an opportunity while you're in there for the three years to try all sorts of roles and be cast against type and and learn through failing, feeling safe to fail rather than through failing explicitly because then you know when there's no pressure on you then you go, oh, wow, actually all of that was available to me. I just thought it wasn't. You know, I had walls up there and there's no need for walls. But what I think I found was it certainly felt like for me going into the industry required me to about 10 years into my career to go, okay, there's more to me than what's currently being shown. And, you know, I had two incredible roles in long running television shows, but they were always high functioning. They were always very powerful. Again, like not a bad thing, but sort of um, closed authority figures. And I was like, but I'm chaos, I'm highly sexed chaos. That is a brand that is true of me. (laughs) And So I was like, okay, well, you gotta go out there. You gotta make your own cabaret shows. You gotta make the work. If people are not coming to you with the work and the roles that you want, make the work yourself. And I think that is the most important thing that I have learned from my career and that I would love to pass on to any women and non-binary and trans performers out there. The sense of, it's not a one-way street. Don't wait to get picked. You have the capacity to make and tell your own stories. And because they are your stories, they will be absolutely unique and completely devastatingly interesting. Because they are yours and they are told in your way. And if you do that, then I come and see it. I see what you're great at. I tell people about it. It goes on and on and on. That's how I think we change this industry. Make your own work.
0: Love that recommendation. And now I'm going to ask you questions about not your own work. How rude. We will get to your own work, I promise. (laughs) But I have to ask, because you did mention television roles. Yes, yes. You auditioned for All Saints, I believe, when you were still studying. You were still at WAPA. Is that right?
1: Yep. That's absolutely right.
0: You auditioned while you were still studying. You end up on the show for several seasons, four seasons on the show. And I recall that that was the period when All Saints was just totally dominant on the Aussie TV scene. Like it was the thing that everyone was talking about and that everyone had to get home at a certain time to watch on a certain night because this was pre-streaming. This was when we still had our lives dictated by the television guide. And I imagine that sort of fame and influence would have happened very quickly for you. What was the emotional experience, the rush of going from being someone preparing to do the thing
1: to actually doing the thing and earning money from it? astonishing it continues to be astonishing to me I thought for the first 18 months that I was going to be fired every single day that I turned up to work I was like they've made a mistake they've made a terrible terrible mistake and that and today is the day they'll realize it was also because it was such a a whole thing that existed it was a bit like um you know that the skipping rope when you you were waiting by the side to get into the skipping rope and then once you were in, you just got to keep on jumping, just keep on jumping.
0: Yeah, yeah, to, to like enter it when there's two other people holding it. Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, so that was what it felt like just before starting. But, of course, the other enormously useful thing about the show that already existed, as, as well as the fact that it felt like I just had to jump in and and be a part of it immediately, no questions, uh, the second thing was that because it existed, I could watch as many episodes as I liked and I could learn the tone of that show like it was a script, like it was full immersion technique. By the time I got to that set, I had seen I think something like 40 episodes of All Saints in the preceding like two and a half weeks. Wow. Because it was a pretty quick turnaround too. And I just was like, I am going to watch this show. I am going to know how it works. So that was enormously useful. And then when I came to make... Winners and Losers, which was just immediately after All Saints, I remember thinking, "Oh my God, we're making this from scratch! Like, I don't know how to learn this tone before it exists." So it was kind of incredible to be able to make something from the from the ground up. That was an extraordinary feeling, but it was also kind of amazing too because I, because I'd done procedural for so long. I remember thinking, oh, there's too much of me in these storylines. Like, when's the A storyline coming through the door with the drama? And then I was like, oh, no, wait, in Winners and Losers, all four of us are the A storyline. We are the drama. It was so interesting just the way I was like, oh, I'm so present in all of these scenes, less of me, less of me. And I was like, oh, no, you're the person on the gurney every week. You've got the medical mystery to solve, except it's a mystery of the heart usually.
0: I can't help but think about having COVID uh, maybe six months ago and I watched four seasons of The Great British Bake Off in six days and I did get to the end of that in uh, perhaps a less professional way than you but I did get to the end and I was like oh that creme anglaise that's not going to get you through to the next round what are you thinking? I had this level of knowledge and criticism mm -hmm, and this authority and self-belief about something that actually I'm not very good at at all. That was extraordinary. So I can see how you know that immersion technique worked for you by, by watching All Saints.
1: Totally right. Also, like when you watch the Olympics and you, you start the first couple of hours, you're like, well, oh, I don't know about this. And then by hour six, you're like, a triple pike, he's dreaming. With that form, with that did you see the way he placed his shoulders though as he jumped off? See, that's where that's what's gonna lose you that.
0: Let me skip forward because I want to ask you about making your own thing because I think uh, you've given some incredible advice to young artists. And it's something I've seen so many friends do with great success that has flowed from it. But there is also enormous pressure with the advice to people to go and make their own thing. And to me, that pressure is twofold. One, how are you going to make any money from it? How are you going to live? And two, what is the thing that you want to make? Yeah. How did you answer those questions?
1: Very good question. Um, I'll come back to finance. The thing about how to make something that you want to make, every sort of one hour show that you're going to make, let's say you're going to make a one hour show, which is usually if you're making a one-ish person show or a fringe show, it'll be about one hour. Every one hour show has got A sort of pre-existing structure if you think about like a cabaret show has got eight to ten songs so you know i've just got to pick those eight to ten songs that i want to sing that i know i can sing really well that have got interesting stories that we've done something interesting with musically and i just know that i need to fill the gaps between them and link them and ideally a little whiff of narrative will come out through that um huge wave of basically personality right with any kind of um structural show you can always pick a pre-existing structure and say it's a three-act structure in one hour. The first act is world building. Second act is all the worst things happen to the hero and we leave them up the tree. Third act is we get them down out of the tree. They triumph, right? That's a standard three-act structure. There are existing templates that you can use to make your work and you can bury them as much as you like. And you can also do freewheeling because with an hour, again, I'm just pitching as if you were doing an hour show, with an hour – Nobody really minds if it's chaotic for an hour, especially if it's your first draft at something. It's just one hour. Just give it a go. Yes, it's true. Spew something out and see what happens. And if you fail, you fail. This is the thing that I think is the most important part of making any show, which is it might not work and you have to be okay with that and you have to have survived failures to know that you can continue to make and create and that you can continue to be vulnerable on stage you have to have sat as a joke didn't land and you get met with that echoing silence and you go okay joke didn't land that's fine moving on or you can make a great bit about the joke not landing you know like it's all actually about learning how to deal with failures and misfires that's the real growth but also I always think if you're making a cabaret show, I have a ratio for a cabaret show, which I'm just going to pass on, which is it should be 75% make them laugh and turn them on, 10% break their heart, and 15% let them leave feeling like they can change the world. And it doesn't matter what, how you sprinkle that out, it doesn't matter how, where you partition that, although I would say probably don't start with breaking their heart, although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could start with 10% of breaking their heart and then lead them out. But that ratio for me for a one hour cabaret show makes my best work and that's what works for me so that's the kind of thing that I'm like just take that as a template and see if that works for you I'm a person who if it gets too much heartbreaky or too much sentiment then I shut down but that's my sense of humor maybe your ratios are different maybe you're better at heartache maybe you're better at Flourishing and changing the world. Maybe it's a full hour of polemic about how we can finally fix this planet and maybe the wage gap as well. There's a thought.
0: Speaking of the wage gap, often the wage gap for artists of all different kinds is significant. Whether it's authors or performers or dancers or whoever it might be trying to figure out the money, there's a gap between what you're earning from the thing you love and what you need to live and figuring out how to get through is a massive challenge. How do you advise kids who are trying to get into theatre now to prepare them for what is inevitably going to be hard for at least some period of time?
1: As you can hear, I was very lucky but also I have, there was the first sort of ten years of my life where I thought nobody would ever employ me again even while I was employed so that every time I had a a break or a holiday I filled it with something and I think my best advice is to say yes to co-ops and things that don't um explicitly promise a lot of money straight up because of the relationships that you'll make and I would never say do something for experience or for exposure right that's the phrase but the Actually, this entire business is, is about the relationships that you make. I also took front of house jobs. Even while I was working on All Saints, I was the front of house like manager and usher for the Spiegel tent at the Sydney Festival. And I remember as like people who were on television were walking past me and I was like, am I okay with this? Am I okay with being like the person who's also clearing the tables at this time? And I was like, yeah, I am. Everybody in this industry knows how hard it is to make a buck. Nobody ever begrudges you like taking a front of house job or a cafe job. Like everybody is in this, or a babysitting job, which I've also done a lot of in my life. We are all aware of how difficult this is. Don't let it affect your your pride or your, your knowledge that you are worthy of continuing to be in this industry. Don't let it in. Just say this is this is part of how the industry functions. I've got side jobs. I've got side hustles. I know incredible people who make most of their money doing Seller Masters but love this world so much that it's a complicated little industry and I believe you can do it.
0: Not me personally. That is all you. You all the way.
1: I don't know. I'd pay to see your cabaret show.
0: Oh, God. Poor people. Poor audience. <laughs> poor imaginary audience. It has been a rough few years for particularly live performance Uh, but I don't want to talk about that because we we have talked about that before on the weekend briefing I want to focus on the positives the positives of today at the end of 2022 this year people were allowed to get back on stage there was an element of certainty that was gifted back to live actors what did you want to do at the start of this year and as we approach the end what's the bit you're most proud of
1: I wanted to make theatre that celebrated everything that we missed and welcomed people back with the most extraordinarily open arms. So I wrote two shows when we were in the apocalypse. One was the Boomkak Panto at Belvoir Street and one is Cyrano at MTC and now soon to be at Perth Festival. And both of them I packed with as many things as I could think of about, like, demonstrations of how extraordinary live performance is and how it is different from every other entertainment form. It is different from a podcast that you listen while you're walking the dog. It's different from music that plays in the background of the party. It is different from Netflix. I love Netflix. I am forever grateful for Netflix for getting us through the last two years. But it is different because it is not a passive engagement. You sit there in an audience of strangers with a collection of people you have never met before and you collectively agree to imagine something together. And that is magic and bonkers and beautiful. And when you think about it like that, it's so wild, particularly that as adults we continue to do this beautiful child thing, right? The same thing that we used to do when we were out in the backyard and we are like, nah, we are aliens and I am the king alien and everybody here and they oh spaceman's coming all of that stuff we do that as adults and we do that under this beautiful umbrella of live performance and that is extraordinary so every piece of theatre that I made I wanted to acknowledge more than acknowledge I wanted to celebrate the fact that we can't do it without an audience that we can't do it without you and that we are aware that you're there and we love you for returning that there's no fourth wall I have no interest in fourth wall theatre I'm interested in theatre that acknowledges that an audience is the final character in any show and particularly particularly in a comedy and that audience is different every night which means the final character is different every night which means we keep it electric it is electric for you because of you so that's what I made when we were all in our cocoon and that's what I have done with my last year and I have loved it it feels incredible to be back
0: Congratulations, and, Virginia, I've got to say, I am never, ever, ever doing our imagined cabaret performance, but as an obsessive theatre-goer, thank you so much for coming back this year and for staying on our stage, I hope, for years to come.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'd still pay to see. Here we go. We open with, at last, my love has come along. That's your opening number, so we break their heart first. It's a twist. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's
0: it for my conversation with the hurricane that is Virginia Gay. You can get your tickets to see her new play Cyrano in Perth by visiting perthfestival.com.au. Virginia is also starring in an upcoming series on SBS called Safe Home. Keep an eye out for the air date in 2023. You can also check out Savage River, which is now streaming on iView. Stay with us. The weekend list is on its way. It is weekend list time and it is the final weekend list for 2022. You're going to have to go like a whole two weeks without our recommendations, folks. I'm not sure what you're even going to do with yourselves. Bron, what can we recommend for people to get through the festive season?
2: So the new highly anticipated Avatar movie has just dropped Avatar The Way of Water It is so, if you like the first one, you will love this one, but don't go hungry like I did because it is a long movie. It is three hours long. Um, But yeah, if you like the original, you're going to love it. It's very similar themes. It's been more than a decade between the original Avatar and this one that's come out. So there's been a massive build up. and surprisingly did not disappoint. James Cameron comes through once again. It's one that you're going to have to see in the cinema. Like there's just no way you'll get the same experience if you watch it at home, you have to go get the IMAX get your 3D glasses on yeah the visuals are just beautiful and I think they did you know a really great job of living up to the very very high expectations.
0: Avatar is one of those movies that my memory is when it came out literally everyone I knew saw it every generation everyone I'd ever met I think it's one of the highest grossing films of all time if not the highest and yet it sort of hasn't lasted in the sense of like it's not one of those movies like I quote or we reference
2: or we talk about and yet we all saw it you don't watch it over again. I think, I think it's just like once it's like a one and done sort of watching experience, which I think is nice. And I was thinking about exactly that because
0: I was listening to a podcast this weekend that I wanted to recommend, which is all about movies and summer movies. Uh, One podcast I really love is called the drop, which is the Sydney morning Herald and the ages culture podcast. I've recommended it before. It's hosted by Osman Faruqi, who uh, is someone I just really trust in the culture space. He has put out an episode, uh, Just recently called The Most Anticipated Movies of the Summer. And it is like your summer movie going. Guide. And I think it's going to be a rainy, grey summer, folks. So it's not necessarily going to be a summer where we're at the beach every day. And movies are always like a nice, cool escape, uh, whether it's from the heat or from the rain. Uh, it's the one time I go to the movies, tends to be over that summer break kind of period. There are a whole lot of blockbusters coming out, and it's almost hard to make a choice about what to see. And Osmond has broken down um, with a guest what he thinks are the go to movies of this summer and Avatar is one of the ones that he mentions and I highly recommend it. It just made me feel so much better about going into the summer and not feeling overwhelmed by all those big
2: Boxing Day releases. My next one is an episode of the podcast You're Wrong About. It's titled Beanie Babies with Jamie Loftus. So it's all about Beanie Babies, which were basically, you know, 90s Bitcoin. Oh, I remember. My sister had (laughs) a hundred of them. Yeah, they were like these collectible little bears like Like, bear dolls made of beanbags
0: like they were like a beanbag
2: bear hence beanie babies (laughs) see we could do an ad (laughs) we <laughs> could. be good. Everyone thought it was going to make them rich somehow with like this supposed resale value. They thought, you know, mainly in America, people thought they were going to send their kids to college with these uh, Beanie Babies. It goes into why everyone thought this was true, how the creator of Beanie Babies wasn't really a nice guy. His whole backstory about how he treated the people, especially women in his company, is just atrocious according to the episode. It's just super interesting. You get full behind the scenes of this super massive cultural phenomenon from a few decades back.
0: That is such a weird warpy trip down memory lane (laughs) for me (laughs) because I I think I was like just too old for the Beanie Babies because my sister is a few years younger than me and just was obsessed. Like all we ever bought her was Beanie Babies and I think my mum kept them all. I wonder if they're worth anything. Sounds like they're worth nothing. My (laughs) final recommendation for 2022 is going to be another movie because I just spoke about movies. I took my son on the weekend to see Matilda the Musical at the Movies, which is the movie version of Tim Minchin's musical that has been on Broadway and has been performed in Australia based, of course, on the book by Roald Dahl. And it is... Just delicious. Like, I cannot wait to go back. My son and I are planning to go again this weekend because we can't wait till it comes on Netflix in a few weeks. It is funny and silly and warm and glorious. The music is absolutely captivating and so incredibly clever. As soon as you see it, you have to jump on Spotify and listen to the music again, but listen so you can read the lyrics along because the lyrics are just so damn clever and it's just a really happy way, uh, to end the year. And I reckon it's one of those movies that it doesn't matter how old or how young you are, you're going to enjoy it. That is it for the weekend briefing for today. And that is it for the weekend briefing for 2022. I want to say thank you so much to all of you who have joined us so faithfully every Saturday morning or over the weekend to listen to the show. We have so enjoyed making it. A big shout out to Bron and to Cuz behind the scenes who helped make the weekend briefing possible. They are truly excellent human beings and very, very good at their jobs. If you want to make sure that you don't miss us coming back in 2023, and who would? Uh, You could give us a Christmas present by going and downloading the listener app and following us there, or you can listen or follow us or subscribe wherever you are getting your podcasts. Tom Tilly and the team are working through the break. That's who they are, folks. I'm not. They will be back bright and early on Monday morning to give you your news, and I will be back very, very soon in early 2023. Have a safe and glorious festive break and new year. We will talk to you very soon.
2: Listener.